Welcome to Pondering AI. My name is Kimberly Nebula, and I want to thank you for joining us as we ponder the reality of AI for better and for worse with a diverse group of innovators, advocates, and data professionals. In this episode, I'm so pleased to bring you Ilke Demir. Ilke is a senior staff research scientist at Intel, where she focuses on the overlap of computer vision and machine learning. We're going to be discussing the fast-evolving world of generative AI, deep fake detection, and more. So thank you for joining us, Ilke. Thank you for the invitation. Happy to be here. So tell us a little bit about your background for folks that aren't familiar with you. And what does it mean when you say you're working on digitizing the real world? <laughs> of course. So uh, I did my PhD in computer science and my specialization was in proceduralization, which is a big word. <laughs> so proceduralizing is taking any 3D data that can be like buildings, uh, manufacturing data, humans, whatever digital data we have, and trying to extract an interpretable and controllable representation from that digital 3D art input. And so that was my PhD, and it, it involves computer vision, machine learning, computer graphics, and um, how we can do both, uh, mostly from a machine learning, traditional machine learning standpoint, that like how we can actually understand 3D data. Then I worked at Meta and uh, developed more generative models and more deep learning models for understanding people in virtual reality, understanding satellite data, understanding 2D reconstruction at scale, so many different projects. Then I had a brief startup experience where we were also looking at deep learning models for computer efficient structures. And then I started at Intel as the research director of Intel Studios, which was the huge volumetric reconstruction uh, space that we were shooting 3D movies. Wow. I actually didn't yeah. realize you were shooting 3D movies. So I've learned something in the first two minutes of this, this episode, which is fantastic. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> now, these days you cannot literally turn around without bumping into a conversation about things like chat GPT, which is certainly one example of generative AI. But it's not the only one, obviously. So can you level set our understanding of what generative AI is? And more specifically, what is the range of capabilities we get with generative AI broadly? Absolutely. Um, so I know that chat GPT is giving us some outputs that are not exactly the input, but I would hesitate to call ChatGP generative AI in the sense that yeah. it is actually a conversational AI based on a large language model. It is not actually generative in the sense of like traditional generative models, you know? So still, I know like from the public view, it is a generative AI, so definitely we can discuss. So current capabilities of generative AI are limited in the sense of we should not expect them to create very novel things that they haven't seen before. And since the training data and the, all the data sets that are used for such models, like maybe ChatGPT, maybe like, I don't know, um, DALI, maybe stable diffusion, are not really understood and moderated and analyzed in a way that it is correct, right? The output of these models may also not be correct. And sometimes it's not just from the data set, but the way that they are uh, built are not preserving structure or they are not preserving the actual information content. And these are all things that is currently out of generative AI's capabilities. 
If you look at from the control standpoint, what I said from like traditional generative models versus generative AI, that is also a downside of current generative AI that there's no control. You know, like if there is a six finger uh, generated by stable diffusion, you cannot go and fix it like, oh, I will like with five fingers. So I think it's very important for the future of generative AI if we can find uh, an intersection of like traditional generative models versus AI based generative models and how we can uh, take the control element from one to apply it to the other. Okay. So, really simply then for folks, uh, who may not have the deeper background, when we think about generative AI, we're talking about systems that can, I don't know if compose, that sounds very human to me, but can generate things like images, videos, maybe voice, speech, mm-hmm. music. Is that right? Is that how you would yes. set a good definition for a good mental model for what we're talking about as the outputs of generative models or generative AI? And there are different modalities and different input and output pairs. So uh, generating images from text versus just generating abstract images or generating 3D from 2D images, etc. So all of these pairings for generative AI has been developed for, for, for some time. Okay. And is there a simple example that you can give that provides a, a contrast or helps us understand the differentiation you're making between a traditional generative model and generative AI? Generative models go all the way back to shape grammars, which was introduced by Steiny in 1972. So if you look at those generative models, there are like grammars, which are like language, uh, but for shapes. So the, these are called L systems. And the very basic version is that imagine you have a turtle and the turtle has three comments. It can turn left, it it can go straight, and it can go right. So by just these three comments, like go left, uh, go straight, go right, um, you can actually create so many shapes. And it won't be like, of course, like very photorealistic images, etc. But for shape world, it is actually the first way uh, that a generative model was introduced by shape grammars. Now, so in that sense, you have some set of rules, which are like grammars, to create shapes, create, create 3D models, create 2D models, etc. Now, what those generative AI models are doing is instead of being dependent on that grammar, they're actually having a understanding of the generative model directly from the data. Now, if we contrast these two, traditional models are interpretable. So you know that this shape was created by like left, right, straight comments, right? Like in the very basic sense. But for generative AI, there is no such primitives. There is no such operations. There is no uh, such control elements that are understandable by humans, right? How we generate things are maybe tuning some parameters saying that, okay, we want to increase the gender or like, uh, you know, like walk in the latent vector of age, etc. But it's not really uh, giving you any shape or structural command that you can apply in a generative model. So in that contrast, I want to take all of these very nicely interpretable models and somehow extract those controllable grammars or controllable like way of representing the generative model from generative AI. And, and so again, for those of us who are not quite as uh, adept in the, the detail of the technical language, essentially, if we want to then generate, for instance, images, maybe it's of people, or we want to generate 
language or video and music. We're giving lots and lots of examples, right, of mm-hmm. pictures of people, for instance, and feeding that into these models and then asking them to generate a person or people or so on and so forth. And it's in that training set that all the goodness and the badness in a lot of ways of generative AI or AI in general come about. And so I want to talk a little bit about that because I know you do work at Intel both in generative AI and also in detecting what has been generated. Uh, mm-hmm. So what's what's real from, I don't, well, I will say real from fake, but I'm not sure I mean fake in the traditional sense. Before we go there, though, one other term, how do we differentiate or how do you think about what is a deep fake? Is anything, gener- is any picture, any video generated by AI considered a deep fake? Or what is the characteristic that makes something a deep fake? Is it intent? What is it? Relatively, it's a new term. So people have different um, associations with deepfake term. But basically, deepfakes are mostly portrait videos, face videos, or voice or images where the actor or the action of the actor is not real. And the differentiating factor that it is deep is because it is created by a deep neural network or a complex algorithmic approach that it is very photorealistic. Um, It is very hard to distinguish it from the real ones. Now, if we look at the deep fakes from the intent point, if it is with good intent and a little bit less convincing or like in a different the domain like 3D, it may be called synthetic data because synthetic data is also like generated uh, faces that are with the same approaches. But if it is used for more like evil purposes, for like misin- for misinformation, for, imp- for impersonation, etc., then it may be more connected with, with deepfakes term. So in a lot of cases in the popular press, is it right, that a lot of times we tend to use, we shouldn't necessarily use deep fake and go immediately to a negative connotation. Although I think popular, from a popular perspective, that's where a lot of the conversation is with the, the use of these to generate a fake image to show somebody saying something they didn't say, usually to, you know, influence, uh, usually negatively influence someone's perception to defraud, to create forgeries, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But you've argued that those are all certainly concerns. They're, and all of those negative applications are not a reason for us to sort of throw, and I hate this term, but I'm using it anyway, throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to generative AI, because there are, in fact, constructive uses of deep fakes. And again, using that as a more neutral term. Absolutely. So can you tell us about what some of those constructive uses might be? Yeah, Absolutely. I may be giving the same example over and over, but I really like that uh, example. So I will go from example to the generalization of the deepfakes for good uh, uh, use cases. So there's an example documentary that one director actually shoot that documentary to explain the oppression that certain minorities in a country are going through and how they how the government is actually like treating them very differently because they are like LGBTQ communities, etc. Now, if the director really wanted to share their emotions, expressions, like facial attributes, but he cannot do that without actually revealing their IDs. So what he did, he actually used deepfakes. So he 
kept all the expressions, micro expressions, the emotion, but instead of like masking or, or blurring or like like making it non-human thing that is like talking with just a voice, he used deep fakes to just like mask the identity and keep the video, keep the documentary integrity as much as possible. So this is a deep fakes for good because the subjects are actually consenting that they can actually, they want to share their experiences, but they don't want their ID to be shown, right? And that is like a very powerful way of actually um, using that. Now, defects for good, if they are done with consent, if they are done with different design priors that they are not impersonating, or if they are actually helping people for anonymization, helping people for privacy preservation, then they can actually be good. So in that case, we also have a new project called My Face, My Choice, so that's also another example for deep fakes for good. So, you know, we have thousands of maybe hundreds, I don't know, everyone is different, um, photos that are online, right? Either like taken with our consent or without our consent, or our friends are like very innocently putting them on social media, but we don't want to be in them. Um, in this case, we actually designed this like social photo sharing platform where there are access models based on uh, whether you appear in that photo or not as opposed to whether you want to be associated with that photo or not. So association with photo is basically those tagging options, right? Like someone tags you, oh, my name is there, I'm in that photo, yes. What happens if I untag? My face keeps living there, but I don't <laughs> want my face to keep living there. Maybe you're not in the platform. I don't want to be associated with that, right? So in my face, my choice, um, everyone that you don't want the, you to, the, don't, want, don't want them to see you, you are swapped with a deepfake. And where does that deepfake come from? From completely synthetic images. So we are not switching you with someone else, but we are switching you with a, a not existing person. And in the embedding space, these are the furthest faces, which means the most dissimilar face to your face. Mm -hmm. So it is actually quantifiably uh, guaranteed that you won't be recognized in that photo later on. But someone else looking at that photo will see a nice person like smiling if you were smiling or drinking if you were drinking, but it's not you anymore. One um, thing we also did on top of that is we asked um, seven different face recognition algorithms. You know, face recognition is also a very controversial area that like should be done, should not be done, who should be do mm -hmm. doing it, etc. So we asked these like seven different face recognition algorithms and on the average we break them by 65%. So 65% of the time, automatic face recognition algorithms cannot detect that it was you uh, after my face, my choice is applied. Interesting, because that's still a fairly large percentage of the time that it can identify it as you. Right, but the motivation is to actually create these so much that we actually explode their search space. Before, mm -hmm. let's say they were looking at um, similarity of 2 billion faces, right? Because that's their, maybe how many faces that they stored, right? Um, but the more that we create those, the more we are actually exporting that 2 billion to like 200 billion or even more, you know? And in that case, they will be very, very unsure saying that, oh, like I was sure that this is Nevala, but I, I don't know, this Nevala and this Nevala and this Nevala, they are all very similar. So I'm confused. What will happen? So this is like the motivation is that now it can be 65%, but the more we explode the search space of those face recognition algorithms, it will decrease and decrease and decrease. Okay, interesting. And... Facial recognition, then, is, is an interesting 
place because there's a lot of ethical issues that have come up because they are not as accurate for certain populations if you're not, in fact, represented mm-hmm. right in the data set. And there's a lot of discussion about when and where it's even appropriate to use it. So there's situations where you could say, well, it's probably better, right, that you're not recognizable, except if, in fact, against you know, our, our better judgment, perhaps, uh, socially or individually, we're using in, in cases like law enforcement or, you know, this is determining whether you get into Madison Square Garden or not. You know, these silly things, you could see a flip side to, to some extent, you're decreasing the accuracy of facial recognition, which mm-hmm. there's really no, it's not either good or bad. It, it's very situational whether the impact there is pro or con. Mm-hmm. I mean, as I said, like this project is towards social media and mm-hmm. I don't think in social media you need to be recognized in images or videos that you don't want to be recognized. Okay. For other mm-hmm. purposes, yes, maybe. But for social media, my face, my choice. <laughs> yeah, I, l- I like that. So this brings up, th- there's been a spate of articles recently about the fact that people perceive or have perceived that generated pics, pictures of people, their faces, assuming they don't have six six fingers or three hands, in fact, faces in particular look, quote unquote, more real than pictures of real people. <laughs> and I, I'm not quite sure what to make of that. It's a little disconcerting on a couple of of levels. So I'd be interested, you know, in your thoughts. And one is from that human perspective. So we know you you talked about social media that there's quite the escalation of issues and and we a lot of times talk about it I think in in terms of of girls or women, but it it happens with boys and men. I think it's pretty gender neutral in terms of body issue or mental health issues coming around because we are constantly bombarded by these visions of you know, reality, these, these uh, airbrushed perfection and, and beautiful lives that are just, you know, continuous moments and streams of, of joy that doesn't reflect reality. And, and I wonder if as we begin to generate more images and people see those images, are we simultaneously also over time deviating from projecting images that are in fact in any way realistic or achievable for people? And what's the impact from on the human scale for that? That's a really great question. Um, and there are so many perspectives. Uh, I will try to like order my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to go back to the procedural world to give an example. I think there was a very nice user study from Peter Wonka's group about the, he's an on computer graphics researcher. They wanted to evaluate the perception on the output of traditional genetic models. Um, And in that case, let's say buildings, okay? And these genetic models are creating beautiful buildings, like all the windows crystal clear, all the walls very clean. Um, If there is trees, trees like in the perfect shape, etc. And then um, they actually twisted that output a little bit. And I think they manually added like some dirt on the walls, (laughs) some windows open, some windows closed. Um, You know, that looks like uh, that, like all those imperfections, you know. And they did that user study saying that, oh, which one is more? more real, like which one do you think is a photograph versus a generated image, etc. And of course, those like hand-tuned, like uh, imperfected outputs were uh, found to be more real uh, mm-hmm. than the perfect outputs. Now, 
now we are seeing the reverse trend maybe that like the more that we see those perfect images we are actually pushing our reality to be, to be more towards that unreal reality um pun to the episode yeah. uh, <laughs> which is maybe harmful in the sense that we are trying to bias our perspective based on those perfect perspectives. Mm -hmm. But what makes us human and what makes us unique is actually those, I don't know, like my hair not being perfect or, you know, like that missing earring or I don't know, like, you know, like all of these things that may be outliers in the data set is actually Mm -hmm. what is making us us. And in that sense, maybe in generative, maybe generative AI will get like so real that at some point it will also capture the imperfect beautifulness that yeah. <laughs> we have in humans. Um, I just hope that like the uh, per- perception of the humanity will not be uh, shaked so much by that time that like we will forget us and go back to our reality. Yeah, we're imperfectly perfect, us, us humans. <laughs> So I've also wondered, because AI systems, machine learning, they learn on the data that it is provided to learn from, as the amount of generated content grows potentially exponentially, we could see that generated, whether it's generated faces or videos or, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it could, as you said, it could be buildings, right? It could really be anything, not just the human human form, has the potential to grow at a scale and quickly outpace, you know, organically generated images, if you will. I'll use organic here just to mean that we didn't use an AI model to generate Mm -hmm. them. Is there a risk that our our systems then increasingly are only effective or efficient and their accuracy is only good against images and patterns that they themselves have generated? Well, first of all, what is the value of generated imagery versus, let's say, organic imagery, Mm -hmm. right? In case of photographs, which are captured imagery, right? Those photographs are mostly associated with experiences and memories. So their lifespan will be much longer than a generated image because no one looks at a generated image and says, oh, like, remember those good times? That never (laughs) happened, you know? Oh, Um, please. (laughs) so I think even the quantity of all those image, uh, or generated imagery may increase, still the quality and lifespan of the captured images will be around to actually like have value. Um, if you go in the middle ground, which is generated, let's say created imagery, which is art, but not generated by AI, that also have a value in the sense that all those artists are spending hours, like days and all that time to create that. And that makes them even more valuable because it is actually encapsulating the time and effort and energy Mm -hmm. and wisdom and style and artistic flavor of that person. And in that sense that, again, like quantity versus quality, like they may be in future less than AI-generated imagery, but their value still will be there. Now, if we look at the core reason that we have generative AI is to mimic those two categories, Mm-hmm. Where does it become so beautiful or so valuable that it has the same lifespan with the original data? That I don't know, and I hope not in close short term. Um, but you know, 
I think provenance approaches will catch up at that time that, you know, now there are like all those like controversies around like um, generative AI um, stealing, uh, in, in quotation marks, stealing artists' style, etc. At that time, I hope that provenance approaches will be so out there and so uh, so accessible that Generative AI will be saying that, oh, like this is an uh, image created in the style of this artist, or this image is created based on this, this, this reference works of this. Or uh, when we actually created, uh, when we actually capture a photo or an art piece that is created, there will be provenance approaches that shows authenticity of that, which is tied to the value of that. So I'm hopeful that provenance will catch up by the time that it is actually that dystopian future where like all <laughs> images are like valueless. <laughs> I'm, I'm giving myself a reputation here as a uh, as a grumpy something or other. I'm not sure which I'm not, but uh, it's these are these interesting sort of rabbit holes, uh, you know, these flywheels. I, I it's easy to go down when when you start thinking about uh, what the outside influences of of this might be. So you mentioned the concept of provenance. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about our ability today to understand or to identify when something has been, in fact, generated. Now, you work in the field and may have a heightened sense or awareness of what to look for. And, you know, you mentioned earlier six fingers, right? We know that generated images of people, they don't do very well with hands because hands don't tend to be featured in in a lot of the pictures and things that are out there in, in the corpus. Taking the point about uh, chat GPT not being generative per se in, in the strictest sense, there tends to be a cadence and a tenor to uh, the text that something like chat GTP pushes out. And if you are conscious and aware of these things, you are likely to catch it. But I would argue that those of us who are already well aware of the field or familiar with AI are better positioned today to detect those than folks that do not. I often pick on a cousin of mine who is still horrified that she can Google her name and all of the names for siblings come up and she thinks this is horrific. And I can't decide if I'm a good or a bad cousin because I don't have the heart to tell her how much more is known about her that has very little to do with just the names of her siblings and how that's being used in every aspect, right, of her life, what she gets marketed to, et cetera, et cetera. So there is sometimes, I think, a bit of a naivete uh, in the broader public. So what is the sort of state of the art today in our ability to detect and to consistently label and make people aware of what is and is not generated? Right. Um, I will start with the subset of deepfakes and then go up from there. Um, So for deepfakes, people have been looking at like boundary artifacts or symmetry artifacts, um, like have that feeling, oh, something is wrong with that video, but what? But generative models, generative AI get even better than that. So now we tend to demand some AI-based approaches to guide user understanding. And for that, we developed, my collaborators and my team at Intel developed um, the first real-time deepfake detection platform, which gives real-time information about something is fake or not. So 
imagine just like we have this audio with, uh, with video and there's that little label saying that, oh, like we think by 90% that this is a fake video, this is a real video. And uh, the way that we are doing is pretty cool for now. <laughs> so <laughs> Tell us more, tell us more. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> we are actually looking at the heart rate. So when your heart pumps blood, it goes to your veins and the veins uh, oxygen content changes. Because of that change, the color changes. And of course, like when I look at the video, I cannot see that color change, but that color change is computationally visible and that is called photophilotismography, PPG for short. So we take those PPG signals from many places on the face and we look whether your left cheek and right cheek have the same PPG signals or uh, their time timing and periodicity is the same, etc. So we take all those like spatial temporal correlations of those PPG signals and we train a deep neural network on top of that to classify each video to real and fake videos. Um, and this gives us 96% accuracy on face forensics data set. And we also evaluated on many different data sets and in the wild settings and cross correlations and cross model exper experiments, etc. Um, they can look for fake catcher and the fake catcher is the algorithm that, uh, that I just explained. So fake catcher paper explains all the experiments. But what I want to mention is that this is also a direction towards informing the user about more signals and what we are doing, right? So fake catcher is not the only detection that the detection algorithm that we have. We, for example, have an eye gaze based approach where we are looking whether they are looking at the point or they have googly eyes. <laughs> so we want to inform everyone saying that, oh, according to the heart rate, it is, let's say, 96% fake. According to the eye gaze, it is 92% fake. Well, if you look at the Motion, for example, motion is another detector. If you look at the motion, it is 100% fake, etc. So the more reasons uh, that we give about the detection, the more percentages that we are transparent about, the more that we make those models interpretable, the more we are opening the eyes of people for those generative AI models. Now, this is in the realm of deepfakes. If we go a little uh, superset of the generative AI outputs, of course, there's text, there's 3D, there's images, etc. So in all of those, we want to um, we develop detection approaches that are looking at priors. So structurally, like hand is an example, right? Like if we detect hands and only all imagery, and if they have five fingers, maybe we say, yes, this is, this is real imagery. I mean, it's not that easy, uh, but like having all of these detection models fine-tuned per domain, fine-tuned per modality, etc., is very important. There's also one more thing that is important. So you cannot just develop a detector and put it out with unclear indications. Mm -hmm. So when we say 90%, that is based on the model accuracy and uh, on the data set that we uh, document. But if you say unlikely to be generated, how much unlikely? What does unlikely mean? Is it right. like, is it generated? Is it not generated? And I think because of that, those vague terms and like a little bit lack of transparency, I just saw like a, there's a chat GPT detector that detects Macbeth as written by chat GPT. Uh, sorry, likely to be written by chat GPT, <laughs> not absolutely. So of course we need to develop accurate models, but we also need to be transparent about like where that result comes from or how much that result comes from. I, I suppose... This begs a couple of questions. First is that 
So for my poor un, unwitting cousin out there who may not even think to ask the question, right, is this actually a video of Kimberly or, you know, a deep fake of Kimberly? Now, I probably have googly eyes naturally and will probably come up as, as fake as a result because uh, I flail about a lot when I speak. But it may not occur to her to ask, even ask the question. So there's some as- aspect of this which is incumbent on us as the creators of these systems to be proactively pushing out exactly. those yes. pieces. But you also, you know, allude to a different point, which is most of us probably are not quite as skeptical as, as I am, and that's probably that's probably a good thing. But the general public may also, even if we let's 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 go to the utopian vision where we always push out, we can always watermark these things in some way. I don't even mm-hmm. know if watermark's the right term there, but we, we always push something out that says, you know, it and it's not let's just say it's it's always required. It's always it always says like yes, we think it is yes or no, this is generated. You mentioned the chat GPT detector where in fact, you know, when it says it is highly likely that something was this is generated, this text was, you know, generated through chat GPT. It's got a nine nine percent, for instance, false positive rate, or it'll say it's ninety six percent, you know, positive rate in, in terms of that. I don't know that folks. I mean, that sounds pretty good. Well, okay, it's it's nine, you know, but for the nine percent, if you're you're using this to determine if your college student used this to cheat, we a whole different discussion about what it means to cheat these days. But let's just use that for now, or, or to plagiarize, you know, something, um, take a shortcut. That has a pretty profound implication, and I'm not sure that the general public necessarily has the statistical know-how or the literacy, uh, is probably a better word, Mm -hmm. to know how, to your point, to interpret that. So do we also need to really lean into better education and training for not just those of us in the field, but everybody that is going to run into these things, whether they know it or not? Absolutely. Um, And... I think that literacy starts with awareness, as you said, for your cousin, right? Because your cousin may not even know deepfakes exist. So a part of my team is dedicated to derive trust metrics. And those trust metrics, of course, uh, encapsulate technical trust metrics that I mentioned before, but also completely human-based trust metrics about what is the general perception, human perception for that kind of output, uh, may it be deepfakes, may it be generative AI output, etc. And what is more trustworthy? How do we even formulate trust? These are like very hard questions that we are asking to understand. And we are running some user studies as of as of right now, actually, um, about like how we can pinpoint exactly how we convey the message, how we understand their perception, how we help them with their perception instead of guiding, like uh, like f- enforcing our perception of something about mm-hmm. it. Um, and these, like, you know, there are all these ethical AI principles like fairness, transparency, accountability, etc. And we are trying to use these pillars both for detection and how we communicate detection and how we do responsible generation um, over all, all the projects with, within the responsible AI framework. Earlier in the conversation, you also mentioned the evolution of things like data provenance. What other types of proactive 
mechanisms do you think we either as an industry um, or as companies, you know, pushing these solutions should be looking at if we start to look out, you know, what, what, what is in the, in the works now and, and what can we expect in the future? Mm-hmm. So we are very lucky that we are actually in a very responsible <laughs> tech industry that um, there is already a coalition called C2PA, which is Coalition for Content Protection Authentication. This is a coalition from uh, many industry uh, leaders like Intel and Microsoft and Adobe and Trupic, etc. And these technical leaders are putting all their brains together about exactly to solve what you just asked. How we can create open technical standards. I want to emphasize open, by the way, anyway, (laughs) open technical standards about provenance approaches and how we can bring those provenance approaches onto all the media creation devices that we have, all the way from cameras to generative AI to traditional editing uh, uh, software, etc. And how we can do that in a secure way that like some camera-based uh, watermarking solution is not replicated by generative AI, for example, right? Um, so um, you can open and read the C2PA documentations and technical standards. And uh, my team is also supporting how we can actually implement those standards, especially, in for, especially for generative AI, how we can merge authentication and generation in one output, how we can make it more secure in the sense that instead of those like all certification and like client-server relations, can we actually embed things into the media so that we just read the provenance information from the media itself? I keep saying media, but again, like it can be images, videos, 3D models, voice, etc. So that's why like I'm saying media or content or data. So I think I'm, I'm very hopeful that like all the provenance approaches, technical standards and all the implementations with these like very diverse set of companies will actually bring the provenance up to par with generative models. Mm-hmm. And that gets us out of this self-propelling uh, flywheel, potentially, because I, I mean, we're not there yet. Right? These, these, don't, mm-hmm. these methods don't necessarily exist, but it's really good to hear that folks are actively working on them and, and looking for them. And I'm sure regulation... Will come, although will come behind as as it always does, because as you were speaking about the, and I think you've called the the fake detection the watermark of being human, right? All these minute imperfections, <laughs> or you know, the fact that my heart rate's going up and you know, getting flushed as I ask questions and get excited <laughs> about what you're saying. But again, as that happens, we then have systems who know, right? We now know that you're looking for you know, this differential in my, the flush in my cheeks, right? Or looking for the way my eyes move. And you can start now to use that to generate better images, right? That, that replicate that or no? No. So that's, that's not a, that's not a slippery slope I should be worried about. For, no, no, for, for some of the approaches you are right, uh, because they are doing like, um, like in layman terms, uh, simple things. But for example, for heart rate, for PPG signals, mm-hmm. um, the way that we are extracting PPG signals is not differentiable. So you cannot okay. just plug it into a generative AI. You cannot plug it into a GAN and try to learn that PPG, learn to generate that PPG signal. If you don't want to um, use the exact extraction of PPG signal, but you want to approximate it somehow, then you need huge data set of ground truth PPG signals, which doesn't exist yet. Um, and even if tomorrow comes a hospital and says that, okay, we are opening our like thousands of people's like PPG signal, 
Then even in that case, you can turn the PPG signal extraction locations to a probabilistic one over, over all the phase instead of just like those like known mm. locations. In that case, the generative model needs to create consistent in time, consistent in uh, frequency, and consistent in spatial locations, consistent PPG signals over all over the phase instead of just those uh, places. And this is a very hard problem because PPG signals are very subtle, very like under the skin, <laughs> no <laughs> pun intended. Um, so in order to create very consistent PPG signals all over the phase is a very hard problem. I... I I cannot say it is impossible, of course, uh, but for now it's it's a it remains as a very hard problem that people will create deepfakes with nice with with uh, good quality PPG signals. It may not be the case for other things. For example, if you are just looking at gaze, mm-hmm. gaze is just like two vectors that two two rays, uh, light rays that you are shooting from your eyes, right? Uh, so <laughs> I geometry- am not looking at her meanly, by the way. So. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you were saying. <laughs> um, so when you shoot uh, rays from your eyes, they actually converge on a point, and it's just like intersection of these two vectors, right? So if you are just formulating gaze, uh, actually that formulation is differentiable, so you can plug it into a loss function. And I think a company who is uh, leading the generative AI space already did that for Zoom meetings that you actually have consistent eyes that are not looking at the cam- uh, at the yeah. screen, but at to the camera. So that is something that can be learned. But for PPG, it's not yet uh, that easily done. And for our other like upcoming detectors too, for, for motion, for example, motion is a very complex thing. And in all of the generative models, uh, generative model outputs that we looked, motion is not preserved as much as real motion in most of the cases, etc. So we are bringing up all those different detectors so together so that they are complementary to each other, they are giving more information to the user, and they are looking at different signals that are possible. Well, I find myself highly reassured by that. Uh, and I had to chuckle when you said about the, the laser eyes there, uh, because you're right, the, the demos I've seen of that are still a little, they're a little unsettling. And, you know, I might not know why until I know I'm looking at it, but they're not, they also still don't move the same way, you know, eyes do, even though they're looking directly, yeah. you know, at the camera. <laughs> and I guess none of us really look that directly at a camera for that long. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I, this maybe goes back to that. And I think I've seen, you, you've talked about this, the watermark of being human. It's all those beautiful uh, imperfections that make us perfect that also Ultimately, even if, you know, I visually can't look at something and, and know for sure, I might get a, I might get a feeling in the, the pit mm-hmm. of my stomach that says, mm, that looks a little off, but we can use the same machines that generated these things to actually synthesize all of, all of those signals and then help us. So, but it does sound like this is ultimately going to be all about bringing a variety of, of techniques and approaches, both manual, offline, you know, our, our own literacy and awareness and mm-hmm. getting to the point where we're actually pushing out and requiring things like you watermarks and disclosure when, when these tools mm-hmm. are being used. So you are a in Everett, uh, inventorate optimist, and I love that about you and, and, and in the approach. So what are some of the types of applications or capabilities that you're most excited about and that you most anticipate in this field as you look forward? 
technically speaking, I think everyone may say that uh, in the genetic space, but like stable diffusion and like all those diffusion models that are creating more modalities and how it is going super fast is what I like. So if we go a, a couple of years back, when deep learning was becoming deep learning, you know, like no yeah. neural networks, um, I mean, if you go really back, like it, it started very like 1980s, maybe, I don't know. But like when we see like ImageNet, et cetera, most of those analysis techniques for recognition, classification, et cetera, got a little bit more stuck on 2D modality. So everything was about images. All deep learning approaches was about images. And to extend it to maybe 3D or maybe voice and other modalities was a little bit uh, lacking. Now, with, with, with the current way that the generative models are going, um, generative AI are going, sorry, like because generative models have been there for, for, for yeah. many years, but for generative AI is going, like I think in just under maybe one month, maybe two months, we saw 3D generation, text to 3D. And I think right like one month after that, I think it was in January, uh, I, I saw that um, text to 3D video is already out there. So like, you know, like 3D plus 1D, I, I can maybe it's 4D, maybe it is the discuss, uh, open to discussion, but 3D plus temporal dimension, which is 3D videos, are already there for text to 3D videos. And this, this, this pace is what I'm really amazed because that was not the case. And that shows that it's not just niche population of researchers are working mm -hmm. on this topic because all of these tools are very democratized. Everyone is actually working that in that topic. Like you open Reddit and oh, this today there is like that very new diffusion model that is trained on that very specific data set. I heard, for example, some colleagues are working on tattoo generation as a generative <laughs> AI, you know? They don't want to design tattoos anymore. They just want, want to use generative AI to design tattoos and they can then tattoo people, you know? Like all those niche domains that is not just coming from us researchers, but from the public is actually making me very excited. Do you think we're spending the requisite equal amount of time on ensuring that we are putting in place not just the, and your team does, you, you guys work mm -hmm. on techniques for using this responsibly or helping to ensure other people are. But in general, as an industry, there's certainly a lot of talk about responsible AI, responsible tech, responsible innovation. Are mm -hmm. we spending enough time on this side of it or is it getting away from us? Unfortunately, I don't think we are talking enough about that. Uh, I know that there are absolutely respectable researchers that have been talking about this for years now. Emily, Meredith, Timnit, like all of them have been yelling about these a lot, but it cannot be just on five people's uh, shoulders, you know. We all need to be open about talking responsible AI approaches, ethical AI approaches, and not only through generation, but also for consequences, you know, like yeah. just like generating something, putting it out in the world and eh, anyone can use it. No, you need to be accountable where it was used, who is using it, what is it used for, you know, like I cannot just like, oh, like I have a human body generator, I like a realistic human body generator and like, okay, I open source it and everyone can use it. You cannot do that. You know, like people will use it for something else. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so yeah, I think we need to spend more time and more energy about talking about all of these 
aspects about consequences, about accountability, about um, transparency, and it should not be an afterthought. It should be where you start the conversation. It should not be like, okay, I have this like very beautiful thing. Oh, how how can I make it responsible? Nah, that's not that's not how we go. At least in my team, that's not how we go. We actually <laughs> first um, see the problem, see like where it can it what is the evilness come from, you know, and then <laughs> yeah. solve it by design, solve it by like how we enforce the system to go through that obstacle because those. Those pillars, those ethical and responsible AI pillars are not something to clean up. They are actually the obstacles that you need to you need to go through. They are not like a, they, they are a requirement of the system. They are not good to have. So mm. if we can make that perspective, everyone's perspective, then we wouldn't be to- having this conversation. So maybe I'm glad. No, <laughs> that was a joke. Sorry. <laughs> Well, as I've demonstrated, I can always find other weird things to worry about and have you right back on. So you can balance my, uh, I don't want to say pessimism, but sometimes it probably comes off like that uh, with your with your optimism. And I think that's a great call to arms for all of us and, and for the industry that we work in to leave things with. By the way, I wouldn't call it pessimism. I would call it realism because I think the questions you ask are the questions that we should ask. They are not pessimist questions. They are realistic questions. I'm going to take that clip and carry it with me when people call me a pessimist. So thank you. I appreciate I appreciate that validation as well. And, you know, I really just, I, I love the way you're able to help us understand really the depths of generative AI. And I think I'm both equally reassured and concerned, uh, more more reassured and more, more concerned after the discussion and perhaps in somewhat equal measure, but a little bit more reassured that folks like you and your team are working on these projects or these problems. And I think that seems about right for the current state of affairs. So thank you so much, Elke. I've really appreciated it. Thank you. It was a very nice conversation. And uh, I think it's not normally as organic so like Ah. very happy that you provide this friendly warm safe environment with right questions to ask oh excellent well i hope that means we'll be able to entice you back sometime here in the future sure all right well next up uh, reed blackman who is the author of ethical machines is going to join us to debunk some common myths about ethical ai and we're going to talk a lot about the line we need to draw between advocacy and fanaticism when we put ai ethics into practice Subscribe now so you don't miss it.